and welcome to the Keeping Abreast podcast with Dr. Jen, the show dedicated to empowering women through knowledge, tools, and resources to take control of your breast health journey. I'm your host, Dr. Jen Simmons, and I'm thrilled to have you join me on this insightful and inspiring journey. As a breast cancer surgeon turned functional medicine physician, I'm on a mission to empower women to live their breast. I mean, best lives. This podcast dives deep into all topics related to breast health, including prevention, diagnosis, treatment, and holistic approaches to support overall well-being. You know what I say, breast health is health. So no matter who you are, a breast cancer survivor, newly diagnosed, in treatment, living with metastatic disease, or you're simply seeking to improve your breast health, this podcast is for you. Join us on this transformative path towards better breast health and a thriving life. And now let's get to today's episode. Hi, it's Dr. Jen. Welcome back. I have something so truly special for you that you are going to want to sit down, be comfortable and listen up, get your notebook, get whatever you get your remarkable, get whatever you take notes on because you are going to want notes and you're probably going to want transcripts because this that's coming for you is going to blow your mind. I have Jonathan Otto with me today and I am so delighted to have made his acquaintance. I have been stalking him. I mean, following him for the last four years um, and hanging on his every word. And the words that he had for me two weeks ago blew my mind away. And I said, I must have you on. So for those of you that do not know Jonathan Otto, he is an acclaimed investigative journalist and filmmaker. He is a beacon of hope in the health advocacy world. He has had several award-winning films on chronic disease, their reversal, and they are viewed by millions globally. And he was one of the key producers in The Truth About Cancer. Now, what he was speaking on two weeks ago when I met him, first of all, I was like a giddy school child for meeting one of these people, these heroes that I have been stalking following for the last four years. But he was speaking on urine therapy. And for those who are not aware of what urine therapy is, it is exactly what it sounds like. And Jonathan, thank you for being here today and for taking the time. First of all, thank you for doing what you do because you make the world a better place and you open our eyes to the facts and the truth and you give us a much needed dose of truth. And I know that you have met a lot of opposition because of the truth that you speak and because of the stand that you take. So I personally want to thank you for being a trailblazer, for being a truth seeker, and for spending your time and your effort to help to make this world a better place and to leave this world a better place than how you found it. Oh, thank you so much, Jen. I appreciate it. I respect the fact that you are such an open-minded, heart-centered physician, and you're doing incredible work. You, Your persistence, your dedication to integrity, I think is something that a lot of doctors can model. And so I'm looking forward to our discussion and super interested in what you've got to say as well. And I think that it's going to be a lot of fun as we exchange some really critical ideas. And I think that 
a lot of people that are listening, this is going to make a lot of sense to them. And it's going to basically give some keys to unlock their own self-healing in a way that will give such resonance because you have to make decisions in life and then you've got to see what makes sense to you and how does the science line up and how do the facts line up and what fundamentally makes sense to you and what are you, what are you attracted to? And people are going to naturally feel this interesting attraction, just like you felt two weeks ago, there was this interesting attraction. And I think that people really need to listen to that inner feeling, that inner gut inkling as to when something just has the total semblance of truth. And you're one for facts. And that's why you gave me the most amount of pushback actually on a call with a lot of physicians on the call. You gave me the most pushback, but I, you saw I was ready for the fight in, in a positive way. And, and I was actually really grateful that you came with such an in, uh, inquiring mind. And, uh, and that's why we're here right now. And people are going to get so many gems of truth and healing from this. That I'm excited about them. Yeah. I'm not sure I would call it attraction. <laughs> I think I was more repulsed than anything else, but curious, for sure, curious. Curious and, is interesting because it's not curiosity attraction. And import- yes, that's true. So let's start off with, you're not a physician, you're not a healthcare provider. So how does someone who is not a physician and a healthcare provider get into this space? Yeah, sure. So Dr. Simmons, I am an investigative journalist. I have found an interest over the past couple of decades in investigating subjects that pertain to human suffering and how to put an end to that human suffering. So my investigative journalist career started before I completed a degree in that subject area. It was all the way back to age 17. I became an ambassador for World Vision, a humanitarian aid organization, started traveling from that age. That was 20 years ago now. So I was in all places around the world, like in developing countries. I was in Tanzania, in Mozambique, Kenya, Mongolia, Papua New Guinea. And I was learning issues and a lot of that related to disease. So I was doing research into HIV AIDS all the way back then independently. And also then over the years, undiscovered, also over the years, I was discovering that a lot of these things that I had seen or understood to be a certain way, there were other layers or different layers of deception that were prevalent. And coming over to the connection between chronic disease and humanitarian work, I felt that this had a common ground that in both cases, it related to a a lack of either information or a purposeful deception that was applied. And that was what was causing the suffering and that there were always resources to take people out of poverty, but there were frequently different methods of coercion and oppression and a suppression of information that caused people to remain in poverty and starve and suffer and die. And the same thing was happening in health. And that was a shock to me because I thought that with all this development, surely these treatments must be great. Surely there must be a real quest for the truth about cancer. Surely there must be a real genuine intent here. And I had no idea how many layers of deception there were and that, that, this whole thing was not about healthcare, it was about sick care, it was about creating diseases in order to sell cures. And those cures were actually not really cures. They were they were ways of just keeping people alive. They're temporary uh, stopovers. I, you got it. You mm-hmm. got it. You understand it well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's how it all started for me. Yeah. So it's so interesting because it takes a really perceptive person to pick up on them. I admittedly, I spent 20 years as a breast cancer surgeon 
and towed the the party line the mm-hmm. whole time and deeply believed in what I was doing and that I was serving a great purpose. And it wasn't until I got my own diagnosis that I was able to take the blinders off and see the system for what it is. Yeah, exactly. So when you were making the truth about cancer, what did you learn there? What did you uncover there? Absolutely. So this was interesting as well, because I found that in, in order to find answers, one of the things I started to see was the people that were getting incredible results didn't necessarily have to have letters behind their name. They just had to be people that were truly dedicated to seeing a fruition of things come together. Like they were truly looking at cause, truly looking at how to solve that at the root, let's say, and to decode what was causing an issue in the first place and then find all the different solutions, then apply them and then and seek to to go deep on that and use these things on themselves. And so these were the people that I found were getting the best results. And sometimes they were physicians like yourself and other times they were people that were investigators or researchers or people that didn't even have, for example, I had a, a degree in journalism and me, media production and a postgraduate degree in education, but those didn't necessarily equate to why I became good at understanding information, connecting dots and relaying information to the public. It was simply a dedication to that and at a dedication on my own body. Cause a lot of physicians, people realize this, a lot of them aren't well at themselves. And so there, there really isn't much that you can transfer to people because it's what we're giving is, is also energy. Mm-hmm. And so if I have not done a single thing that I'm talking about, then people are going to sense that in different ways. And that yeah. will have a, a, a deleterious effect. At what- least when I came up through training, the kind of governing thought was do as I say, not as I do. And yeah, it was that go. whole paternalistic practice of medicine that existed. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually remember going to the cardiologist with my father at one point, because my father was diagnosed with hypertension at a very young age. And he, his cardiologist is 350 pounds. And I thought, what is wrong with this picture? <laughs> like yeah. here is someone who is supposed to be protecting people's hearts and he's not doing anything as far as I could see. And I, I was a kid, I was a teenager. And yeah. he wasn't doing anything to protect his own. So true. Yeah, you got it right. And th- that was that the, the need for congruence that we've all been looking for that was driving me to then try and find an answer to my own health problems and then come to what you were asking about with the truth about cancer. I was amazed. That changed my life working on that project. So I was working as a producer in that setting for Thai and Charlene Bollinger and working alongside and in that project for a few years and traveling to uh, various areas. Some was in like a lot was in the United States, some in Mexico, some in Australia, talking with physicians and interviewing patients and really seeking to find a connection between all these different therapies and then have to make the decision. What would I do if I had cancer? Which one, which therapies would I do out of all of these that I've learned? Which ones do I think were the best and which ones do I feel like were hyped up and maybe had a lot of history or quite a good reputation, but weren't necessarily ones that I felt were working today. And that then became an area of focus. And I found different solutions and therapies that I thought were amazing. I, I went to the Gerson's therapy center and learned about coffee enemas and learn about the juicing protocols and, and the 
plant-based diets that they were employing. And then I went to the Hoxie Biomedical Center, which was Harold Hoxie's original center. And he was the guy that back in the early 1900s was getting imprisoned so many times for his methods of treating people. But he was backed by so many different politicians and congressmen because they were trying to to find a way to give people true solutions. And he then set up his clinic again in Tijuana. I interviewed a 40-year pasta diagnosis. Pamela Kelsey passed a pancreatic cancer diagnosis. And she was- Which 70- is amazing, right? Isn't that because amazing? Most people don't have a five-year survival of pancreatic cancer. Exactly. And she was 78 at the time I interviewed her. It was about 10 years ago. And then I remember Dave Olson. I interviewed him at the Hoxie Biomedical Center as well. And he was- eight years past his diagnosis, but he was given three days to live because he had a tumor the size of a volleyball in his gut and in his groin and then a large one in his groin and neck. And it was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And to see him cancer-free, it was 17 oncologists as well that had given him anywhere between three days to maximum three months. And here he was eight years past diagnosis. That was the Mayo Clinic. So it wasn't like he was getting diagnosed by doctors that didn't know what they were talking about. They did, but they only knew they knew that would be the outcome if he didn't do anything or did their treatments, but that was that. that. That's the thing is that they have such a limited scope, right? Mm -hmm. Because they know that what they have doesn't work. And so that's where they give people a terminal diagnosis, but they never, they don't look beyond their walls. You got it. You got it. And so then what was amazing as that work continued, there were things that I'd learned. Like I even went to, a court with Dr. Stanislaw Bozinski. So there were things that were far beyond actually even producing the film that I was fascinating, fascinated in the subject area, fascinated in what these doctors were going through and really felt a calling to that front line in that fight with them. And I find it shocking to be where I am right now and being on the cutting edge of revealing the combinations between different therapies that are working so effectively and to be at some of these conferences, because you mentioned about not being a physician, but then working in, in a setting with and alongside educating with physicians where these surprising things have been happening, where I'll be at an event, which is only medical doctors or chiropractic or naturopathic doctors. And then I'll get called up on the stage, just, hey, hey Jonathan, can you share how this works? works? And because we have like a lot of people, there's millions of people that have subscribed to our newsletters and we have then got thousands of case studies that have come back. And and then I've often come alongside some of these people as well. And then the, you know, they've got my personal cell phone and I'm following up and finding out. So I'm getting somewhat some aspect of a, what would be considered clinical knowledge, but again, in a very informal setting. And I'm fine with that. I think that is really interesting. And I think that in order to really help the world right now, we've all got to go a little bit post-apocalyptic and get some understanding and also realize our limitations, but then be completely bold in in seeing if the science completely backs something, let's go for it. And so then we've got so much data. I've got so much data that I get called up to speak at these in these settings and I'll be on panels with physicians and be speaking to physicians and explaining how these therapies work. Some of the leading cancer therapy centers then asked me to come out and do education with their staff based on all the research that we have. So when people understand why am I listening to somebody that is 
an investigator instead of a physician, it's very important that we see this interface. And what's happening is I'm often bringing uh, therapies to uh, doctors, just like what happened with you on that call, and then uh, helping to, to for that understanding. And so the research needs to come together with the clinical experience. And that's where I am on that bridge. And I'm a bridge also between different physicians that are doing different therapies to bring them all together in one. So I'm looking forward to sharing some of these really out-of-the-box therapies, and I'll let you lead, Jen, where you think we should go with this. And I think what you're saying is so important for people to understand in that for the people that are in the trenches of clinical medicine, for me, for instance, I don't have time to do all this investigation, and I am relying on people like you to bring me this knowledge so that I can introduce it to my patients so that I can roll it out to that population. So, you know, I think of you the same way that I think of that PhD in the lab, right? It's the same thing. That's awesome. I really appreciate that. Thank you for seeing that importance. So let's start off with, because you did talk about your experience while, while producing the truth about cancer and doing all of these interviews and traveling to all these places and looking for the elements of success. So what are some of those out of the box success therapies that you saw repeatedly in a pattern with regard to breast cancer? Because the people here really want to know what can they do that their doctor isn't telling them about. Yeah, it's awesome. Okay, so there's lots of amazing things. And all of these therapies that I'm going to talk about are therapies that I have done and do consistently myself. And they're, so they're things that I would say, obviously, I wouldn't do chemo uh, now because I don't have cancer. And and obviously, no one can say what they would or wouldn't do if they had that diagnosis. But my point in saying this is that I see these therapies to be so safe and so effective that I use them myself, even though I'm not in a life-threatening case. So that should be very consoling for people in that regard. So I'm going to range in a, in a couple of different areas that range from antiparasitic therapies, both in the drug aspect, or technically they class as drugs, but they're a middle ground or the straight plant-based or even homeopathic. So they Mm -hmm. come from natural substances. And then I'm going to go all the way over to therapies that the body uses to identify its own uh, antigens, or in this case, to identify tumors, cancer through its own self-signaling processes, which is not frequently talked about or understood, but it is the most important aspect I think that we'll probably land the plane on. And then there's other therapies that help with integrating and uh, helping the electrical charges of the body that help the body to self-signal and to be able to resolve its own issues and self-heal at an exponential rate. So what are the, how do you turn the energy and the, the frequency of the body on correctly? And you look at animals like a salamander, how does it regrow a limb? That's just incredible. Yes. And there's an answer to that. It's to do with the frequency that it resonates at. It it will pump its frequency when it loses a limb up to minus 50 millivolts, which is unlike a frog, which is also an amphibian, can only get to plus 30. And so it doesn't get to that high millivolt range of frequency. And it's that frequency that's helping with the self-healing and regeneration. Our livers actually do have a resonant height close to that 
that frequency or they go into that regenerative range. So if you lose a part of your liver, it'll actually self regrow like a Wolverine X-Men style regrowth where you think, man, if only the rest of my body could do that, how do I tap into that? And so there are some therapies that I can talk about that do help with getting your frequency worked out through, in this case, the negative negatively charged electrolyte minerals in the body in this chloride is the one negatively charged electrolyte mineral unlike the other four that are positively charged and there is a pathway there that people can tap into which i think is absolutely amazing so i'm doing a lot with with that and so there's a few things here that i think are really great one that even just got a bit of press on joe rogan's show he talked about fenbendazole which is an anti-parasitic and so would I use that if I had breast cancer? I would use it now. And I, I think that people doing anti-parasitic cleanses is important. Ivermectin has got a lot of conversation around it because it got known because of COVID. But then if anyone just does any study, looks up any studies on Ivermectin and cancer, they'll find it's extremely effective against cancer. And the same is true for fenbendazole, but that's a canine dewormer. So that one's not typically known, but you can find out information on that, even on MD Anderson, because they had a, a case study where someone put their cancer into remission. And they were basically given a death sentence and they're still going, they're fine. Sorry, one second. Past their diagnosis. And so you've got all these cases, membendazole, which is the human version of the fenbendazole, has clinical studies that back that it kills cancer stem cells, as does curcumin, which is then a natural natural plant-based from turmeric. This curcumin is able to help kill cancer stem cells. There becomes more conversation in not just killing cancer cells, but actually killing cancer stem cells because they're the origin of the cancer. That being said, because they are such undifferentiated cell forms, why not have them differentiate into other cell types and have a cancer stem cell switch into a normal healthy cell? And so there is information on that as well. And people should be thinking about that, which taps into other therapies that include stem cell therapy, but stem cell therapy is typically understood as too expensive and carrying risks. That risk the major risk being, well, what if the stem cells cause my body to replicate a tumor? And that becomes a, a frightening thought for people. That being said, if you look at sources of stem cells like urine, which is a shocking source, and you'd say, what? Stem cells are in my urine? And the answer is yes. And if you realize that and you realize the expensive stem cell sources that are getting used to regrow knee cartilage is from amniotic fluid, the amniotic fluid is actually just baby urine. And once you start connecting these dots, you realize this regenerative aspect of our bodies. And this would be great to actually pick up our conversation because it's actually very important that people give a kickback because we have had a heavy, let's, I'm going to say it's indoctrination, but let's just say that we have been told and let's argue the point of that it's a toxic substance because our body is eliminating a waste product. And I'll, I'll combat that and say with the actual evidence behind this, but if you could get your own autologous, which means healing arising from one's own cells and tissues, if you could get your own autologous stem cells that are coded for you, would they then attach to your tumors? Because that's what stem cells do. And a urine-derived stem cell actually performs identically to a mesenchymal stem cell, which in that it models its doubling time and immunophenotype. And you can look up the research from Dr. Zhang, Z-H-A-N-G, who discovered urine-derived stem cells in 2008. Wake Forest just found 100 million stem cells in a three-week urine sample last year. 
published that was from an NIH grant that they used for this study. That information is very interesting because if you look at the research on mesenchymal stem cells, they do target tumors. They actually aim for them, which is super amazing to think about, wow, I have a natural process that that will work like a homing beacon to cancer. And then what does it do when it attaches to it? Does it form more of it? The answer is no, it doesn't. Because one, urine-derived stem cells, guess the one thing that they can't differentiate into? Cancer cells or teratomas? You got it. They can't. They've never been demonstrated to be able to do that since they were discovered in 2008. And it makes sense that they don't because they are very sure of their identity. Typically, if you get a stem cell that's forming a cancerous cell, it's because you've taken it from an aborted fetal cell or from another form that is like a Frankenstein model where it is out of control. It's not, it, one, it's unethical, but it's an out of control system. Whereas urine is a very in control system. It's babies are drinking urine in the womb from basically from 10 weeks to, so to I want to back up because I want to make sure that we unpack all of this yeah. in a way that everyone can understand. Yeah, let's do so it. First, can we back up to the antiparasitics and yes. ask by what mechanism are they working? Do we know? Yeah, I would say absolutely. So a couple of things. One, there they, they absolutely can be misdiagnoses where you think that it's cancer, but it's actually not cancer. It's either parasites or parasitic egg sacs. And I even had this happen in my family. I'd been talking about this forever, but it then just happened to my wife's great aunt. And she then had what seemed like a tumor in her brain, but then they discovered it was just a parasite that had grown in her brain and it looked like a tumor. And that was an example of something mm -hmm. that is coming out. So firstly, just understand that when you say cancer, you're talking about this dysregulation and you're talking about something that is a non-descriptive title. The word cancer doesn't even mean anything. It basically means it's a star sign from the Chinese, yeah. uh, you know, the crab that grows. Tom Lodi taught me that. I did? Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. So then how do you know what is growing and not stopping growing? Is that a parasite? Is that parasitic, parasitic eggs? Or is this an aberrant yeah. cell? And I'm saying, yes, it absolutely could be an aberrant cell. But and, in, and both... in the case of breast cancer, I think that we have pretty good proof that this is a proliferation of abnormal or transformed breast cells. There you go. Exactly. And I would agree with that. And that's that caters more into the theory that I was going with to then convert those cells into healthy cells because they are an attempt at being normal cells. It's not like this poison. Let's kill the body. Let's poison the body. It's basically, it's a system that's out of order and in chaos. But if it was instructed correctly, it's like there's some conductor that instead of telling the band to, to play this tune, he's just like flailing his hands all around and all the band are all skilled players at their instruments. And all of a sudden this like terrible sound comes out as if they'd never been trained. And you think what a terrible uh, symphony, then you realize, oh, that instructor just like literally got drugged yeah. before the concert. And yeah. now he is flailing his hands around like a madman. And the band sounds like idiots. Yeah. It's the kids in the schoolyard who, if you give them an apple before they go out to recess, they're fine. If you give them a candy bar before they go out to recess, they act like little animals. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing, right? And it's the the control that the teacher has in the beginning is what tone are you going to set? And that's the same thing that you're saying. And I have long said that cancer is a normal response to an abnormal environment mm -hmm. and that 
it's this transformation of the microenvironment that causes these cells, which were otherwise normal to then transform into, they go into survival mode. Yeah. Right. These are just transformed cells in the same way that they can transform into survival mode. They can also transform into normal behaving cells. That's awesome. And I'm so glad to hear you say that. That's it was news to me when I researched this and found that out. That's just a, such a shocking idea. And people just start seeing, okay, my breast tumor, it looks like it's going down in size, but you don't think about the fact that you've got an undifferentiated cell that's saying, come to think of it, now that I've got some more education, instead of being like a one cell amoeba and doing nothing at all, let's just become a healthy skin cell. Let's become a healthy heart cell. Let's become a healthy breast tissue cell. That would be great. Wouldn't that be nice? and start behaving like a great cell and they are re-educated. So what can do that? Then they become the things that we then are re-instructing our body to do, to be able to self-correct, self-heal. So with regard to the antiparasitics, if they're not actually directly treating parasites, what are they doing to transform the environment? Yeah, that is so fascinating. Okay, firstly, and, and this is what I was going to say before that one, if we were misdiagnosing, like we said, and if it was a tumor, then we were, we could kill the, the parasite, which would actually be disguised as a tumor. But in this case, if we're talking about an aberrant cell, then it wouldn't be doing that. It would be changing the environment, like you're saying. And that environment would be that parasites causing the most amount of dysregulation in the body. It, in the sense that they stealing nutrients from the body. Mm-hmm. They're creating a confusion in that they're, and they're changing our cravings as well. So like we will crave excessively sweet foods and excessively salty foods when we have parasitic infections and parasites can take over organisms. So they'll basically take over the brain of an ant and make it do the opposite things to what it wants to do naturally. Mm -hmm. Like they'll actually make it feed itself to a cow and it will march in the opposite direction when it's supposed to be going to bed. And then it hangs itself out of a leaf, like waiting for the cow to eat it. So it can transfer into the liver of that cow or that sheep. So one, it, but I don't feel like that fully answered your question. What could it be doing that could be re-educating or changing the environment? That is an interesting question. I think that my answer is still basically on that your body naturally wants to correct all these types of issues and it just mm-hmm. needs its help. It needs help in removing all these layers of infection. There well, may I, be another I think explanation. Chronic parasite infection is a huge issue in this country. Exactly. And I am repeatedly told, oh, I don't eat sushi. Oh, I don't eat raw meat or I've been a vegan for 20 years. And I say like, you can get it from eating strawberries. You can yeah. get it from eating anything. Like parasites are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Yeah. And if you eat raw food, which most of us eat raw food in some form or another, yeah. you probably have come into contact with parasites. And more than likely in this current environment where we are flooded with not enough sleep, too much blue light, too much activity, too much sympathetic tone. This is the environment that parasites love. Yeah. Because that suppresses your immune system. And so the parasites are allowed to survive. And then the more the parasites survive, the more immunosuppressed you are. So it's this kind of feed forward system that sets the stage 
for the parasite to be taking over, robbing you of nutrients, as you said, but also creating this low level chronic inflammation, which eventually will manifest as all these diseases that we're struggling with, really Mm -hmm. struggling with. Yeah. Okay. So you have the solution. (laughs) We started to talk about parasites and then you started to talk about urine being a source of stem cells. Yeah. So how is this a solution? Absolutely. And I just wanted to second, I, I believe that your thesis on parasites is correct. And I think that there may be things that are beyond what we understand right now, but it works and people need to, if they're not doing it, they need to do it. It needs to be a key part of your regimen and it could be these drugs or the one that is the easy slam dunk is to go for the ones that are herbal based, which is black walnut hulls, green harvested, uh, saputica seed either the 10 to one extract or the whole seed. They've got great clinical trials around them with their ability to kill parasites in very short periods of time. One zoologist found like he trapped 50% of parasites within an hour or two, like really yeah. interesting studies. And do you recommend that for long-term or do you tell people to do it for short periods of time and then repeat it exactly. a year later or something like that? Exactly. But yeah. I would say one it may be a lot longer than you think when you're starting and you're doing it for the first time, because I'm saying that generally you should stay on it as you continue to see improvement. Or if you haven't seen improvement yet, it may be a sign to keep going. And that's why three months is not out of the question to, instead of just getting one bottle, if you're doing an anti-parasitic cleanse, instead of getting one bottle, get three, and then just treat that like a 90 day cycle instead of a, a, a 30 day And then you can do some of this three days on, three days off. And these different methodologies, often when people are taking these herbal supplements and they're doing it for a longer period of time, what I find is generally you can stay on. But look, some of the guys that may have a great case for doing the three days, three days off or six days on, six days off, or there's different intervals and you can do your own research and have a look around that. Generally, my approach has been just getting people on doing a 90 day cleanse and and staying on it. And we've seen incredible results of people reversing all kinds of conditions. Wormwood is great. Clove, neem, you've got trophala, which is more about moving to the intestine, like getting parasites flushed through the intestines. And then you've got fulvic and humic as great carriers. So helping to deliver those into the cells and working on a cellular level. There's a lot there. Absolutely. And then the heavy metals, you got humic and fulvic for those zeolites and some of the other therapies I'll talk about as well, but you were coming into the stem cells. I want to answer that one now for you. So you wanted to talk about, yeah, what do we know about stem cells? What do we know about urine derived stem cells? What do we know about urine therapy for cancer? I think it's the big missing link. And I can tell you this, that if there's one therapy that I was going to do, and you basically said, Jonathan, there's a lot of therapies that you can do, but for some reason, the genie in the bottle says you can only do one, which one are you going to choose? And I say, I'm going to do urine therapy. And even if I got to choose between five different things in urine therapy, I would choose urine therapy. And there's a reason for that. And so there are a lot of studies on this, which is fascinating. And it does have more backing on it than practically, I would say really any other single substance by far, which is shocking. 
and I'm talking about modern medicine, not just historic ancient medicine, but it definitely if you would include that, there, there's no comparison. There's such a tidal wave of knowledge and information that was passed down through thousands of years. And we happen to not be that we're, we're not, we're actually not the first society that doesn't do urine. We, we would have been, but we actually have it all through our drugs. So urine is all through our drugs. So I can't even mm-hmm. say we don't do urine therapy. We just do it very unconsciously. We're one, we're yeah. basically one of the first developed societies. I mean, that Premarin, have, right? Not known. Yeah. Premarin, urea urokinase and murine uh, Mm -hmm. there's a few examples but then you've got blood clots eye infections ear infections fertility all you know hormone balance all covered in just a few that we mentioned that anti-cancer urokinase yep urea anti-cancer burns skin absorption transdermal deliverable um stem cells i would say as well okay but you asked about the stem cells particularly so so I actually yes, remember getting stung by jellyfish when I was <laughs> in the Bahamas one year and the instructor, our diving instructor <laughs> told me to go on the beach and have my husband pee on me. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So I'm sure that he would have reminded you of that frequently. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's an oldie but goodie. Yeah. But I'm sure, but like funny enough, I would say that it's funny, but it's actually really awesome because one, he actually did help you out and it came from him. You didn't pull out a credit card. You didn't go through Amazon. It it actually made you deeply connected because you're providing something to to your partner that they needed in that moment in that, or say if it came for yourself, you provided your own anti-venom. There'd be a sense of confidence that you'd have in yourself when you do that. And this is what our ancestors had and we've really lost them. So yeah, so he reminds you of it. That's funny. And did it work? It did work, actually. I was miserable and in a lot of pain and it worked immediately. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. But why not yours? You couldn't urinate at that time? I don't remember. Or maybe we did both. I was really like covered. Yeah. Yeah, it was bad. And he just said like urine is the solution. Yeah. So yeah. And he has better aim than I do. Yeah, there you go. I, I love that we're talking about this. That is awesome. <laughs> my, my husband is going to murder me that we're talking about. Are you kidding? This. No, it's great. It is so great. Uh, um, look, all the guys will be like having a, having a great laugh and all the all the girls will be having a great laugh. Look, it here's the thing, but he, he, here's the real rise, reason why people are, are, are like laughing and cringing is because they think it's a waste product and they think it's gross. And that right. I'm saying that is the biggest lie. And once you took that out, it would be like saying, I went under this water fountain with clear crystal water and I washed in it. And then everyone's laughing like you went under a water spring, like a waterfall with clear crystal water. Oh, gross. That's so gross. How could you have done that? It's so degrading, but it's only degrading because you think it's gross and a waste product. But again, it's, this is just complete nonsense. And I'll prove why it is. The other problem here is that, you know, it depends what people believe. Do people believe that we were created in some way by God or there's some intelligence behind the design? Because if there was, why on earth do babies urinate in the womb and drink it all day long, every three hours? Why on earth do we have the same organ that a baby comes out of, the semen out of a man, the baby actually then is delivered through the uh, vagina and is all coming from the same area as urine and why do we procreate why do we have sexual intercourse with our two most dirty organs that bring life and death 
And it's such a dark kind of concept. It makes sense yeah. why people have, are seeing seeing sex as dirty when it's actually very clean and sacred and beautiful. And that's what it truly is. Yeah. I think that is a lot of religion in there mm-hmm. that created that judgment. There you go. Because yeah. we can get back to the animate Eve and eating the apple and tree of knowledge. and But let's instead... Talk specifically about what you mean by urine therapy, because I I believe that in order for people to not feel uncomfortable, they have to be educated. Mm -hmm. And so they need to know what that means and they need to know what it's going to do for them and why, because if you know what's happening And that it is going to have this positive effect on you. I don't know about your experience, but in my experience, women who perceive themselves to be dying of breast cancer will do just about anything to make sure that doesn't happen. Exactly. And that's so beautiful. And that's so powerful. Okay. So I'll, okay. So here's the scoop on this. Here's why it's powerful. And then I'll get to explaining why I'm can I'm going to put forward that there are absolutely no toxins in urine. And obviously, even if there was a little bit, and what I would show is that's not because of the metabolite form and how the body distills and what this process is and why it's sterile, that that even if someone was to perceive there's a small amount of a, a toxin in here, that all it's doing anyway is identifying, helping you remove more of those. But I believe that people get clearer that it, it is absolutely not a waste product. And that's the reason why babies don't get infected in the womb. But I'll come back to that. But the key first in understanding the efficacy of why this is important, why it works and why it's so critical for cancer. So now what I'm going to say is that this was the number one cancer treatment over the last hundred years. And this was part of how the you know big pharma came to demonize this because it was very clear over the last hundred years through many studies that were conducted by multiple countries independently and researchers from different countries in the cases of, let's say in 1948 in Europe, you had, this is compiled in J.W. Armstrong's work. And he showed that there was over 300 physicians that had come together. They'd compiled their research over the past 12 years of conducting studies on urine and people putting cancer into remission. They had thousands of labor, they had thousands of laboratory studies and hundreds of human case studies that they produced and presented at a, at annual conferences. And in uh, one case, a uh, particular conference where they were bringing this before the medical board, 1948, and uh, this was in Europe. And it's documented in a book called Your Own Perfect Medicine by Martha Christie, and people can find that. And then we've got the resources as well on urinetherapy.com, and you can see J.W. Armstrong's work as well as Martha Christie's work there as well, and download their books for free. But what you'll find is that they found that it was so efficacious. And in this case, they were using an extract called the H11 extract. They found it was so efficacious. It was, if you look at the individual case studies, they were presenting close to like 100% efficacy. If there was X amount of people in the group that there was only like, let's say there's one case where it hadn't quite resolved yet, but all the others had, and that there were some other variables to explore and to help them resolve it. And this was for cancer for people with cancer? All for cancer, yeah, absolutely. It, yeah, exactly. 100%, yes. There was, 
And Japan had a lot of research in this regard and the United States as well. And so there were a lot of researchers that were conducting studies in this and they were using, they, they had all these different names because they at that point really still in some ways did see that, okay, there are, there may be, I guess they still approached it. One, they didn't know that stem cells even existed back then. We've only known that stem cells existed for like, I don't know, maybe 20 years or something. Mm -hmm. But so we're now seeing how many life-giving properties are in urine, but they just understood it in a very basic setting, which is the most important first step to understanding how the therapy works, which was that urine would always contain the antigens to cancer and they would always have this information. And that information was critical. And, and they had it under these different names, like the H11 extract, or they'd have the HUD, human, human urine derivative. Then they would have the directin, which was actually named by the researchers in 1966 in Atlantic City, New Jersey, where they found that every time they would take urine and put it together with cancer cells in, in vitro, they would find that cancer cells would assemble themselves into straight end-to-end -end rows. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. The cancer cells would align themselves in straight end-to-end -end rows when every time they would produce this without fail when put together with urine. And I can show you the studies now on urine and urine derived stem cells that it's like what the research does specifically find is that they have regulatory roles. They actually do have intelligence and information in their ability to instruct cells what to do. And that's certainly true. If you just look up any research on mesenchymal stem cells and cancer, you'll find that even the university of Chicago just produced an article on this very recently where they showed that the mesenchymal stem cells will instruct cancer cells of how to become healthy cells. And also because they deliver themselves directly to the tumors, they can get used as drug delivery mechanisms so that they could put any kind of suppressant or cancer killing drug, or in this case, I'm saying use curcumin or use different cancer killing drugs that or you know, natural therapies. And then you can have a combination of factors potentially going on here. Uh, but isn't that just amazing? Like you you start, you saw all this research coming together and in these cases where they would even inject directly into the tumors. I'm not saying I personally got research on this, but I can say that there's tons of research on this where they would do this. Bozinski, Stanislaw Bozinski had the anti-neoplastons, which are anti-cancer properties in urine and that he was injecting these and he was actually taking it from horse urine. But this is part of the reason why people like the late Dr. Rashid Buttar, who is a very close personal friend and mentor of mine that would always explain to me, this is a dysregulation issue with cancer. That's what you need to focus on, not ca killing cancer cells. And you can, you, you've got to fix the dysregulation and here's how you do it. And he explained how he would use urine for his patients. And he had over 120 stage three and four cancer survivors that were 10 years past diagnosis. And he said, they'd all use this urine therapy. And we were taking the antigens, which he labeled as R-SOTA, very similar to HUD and H11, Directin. There are other names, anti-neoplastons. It was the same concept, taking the antigens and then injecting them. But what Dr. William Hitt did, who was Dr. Batar's mentor, who was a Nobel Prize winner, he would actually take the urine and inject it in subcutaneous fat, and they wouldn't do any extraction process. They would just take the urine, inject it. They would do it once a week for cancer patients, and then they'd do it every day for the severe patients. And Dr. David Wolf, he was at that clinic, he said, for around 10 years, crossing the border between Tijuana and San Diego. And he told me, like, even the most dramatic cases, stage four brain cancer, he said, like, if people did this therapy, people wouldn't die. That's what he would say to me. And of witnessing that over that time, they would combine it with ozone therapy, 
which I think an amazing combination. I'm, I'm fascinated with oxidative therapies like chlorine dioxide. I think they work together perfectly, but yeah, I'm amazed by it. So let me ask you something because I have been taught, and this is part of um, our training, both in my conventional medical training and in my functional medicine training, that the urine is one of the ways that our body detoxifies. Specifically, we secrete heavy metals in our urine and we measure the urine looking for heavy metals, looking for pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, all of those things. So how are we not re-inoculating ourselves with these very things that we're trying to get rid of? Yeah, exactly. This And this is the most important question to answer for people because that is the big um, objection. Okay, firstly, I'm going to say that urine is not the method of detoxification at all. It doesn't, urine is not a pathway for this. Urine is actually the pathway of, of life-giving substances. Okay, so what's my evidence for that? One, okay, so now if urine was a delivery system of toxins where we exit toxins from the body, babies would die in the womb. Here's why. Because feces would, and if you have a baby that's doing bowel movements in the womb, that they, the babies will die in in that setting. They will reinfect themselves. And so I'm 100% saying that feces is a delivery mechanism of how the body will excrete wastes and toxins. Um, that being said, Fecal microbial transplant is a real thing. It does work. Uh, but one, firstly, one, the, the person can't be their own donor because there's no real point in that. Right. Uh, you need another donor, right. uh, which is not true for urine. Urine, you can have another donor. For example, you could have a healthier child or most importantly, a younger person because they would have a higher telomerase activity in their stem cells which was proven by the Wake Forest study because you had a 20 to 40 year old age group. They 75% of their stem cells in their urine were telomerase positive. The fifties and up age group were 59.2% of their stem cells were telomerase positive. So it was still very high. And I would still say, go with your own, but there are cases where people would then go all the way to an infant child, which would then be hundred percent efficacious likely in its telomerase activity, which is why we're using amniotic fluid for the knees, but you could still use your own because it that's even 60% is by far enough. But coming back to the womb is if it was a place where babies were urinating and excreting their toxins, then it would actually have a compounding effect. And you would say, babies don't get that many toxins. The answer is they absolutely do. Unfortunately, they'll get on average about 287 chemicals through the umbilical cord. And so they're getting pumped with chemicals, but they have a self-regulatory system that helped them deal with that. And guess what that system is? It's their urine. So their urine is actually the filtration of their blood, but it's the positive filtration. So urine is much more sterile than blood and urine is either completely sterile or sterile. And so it works in that fashion. And so your body has the most elite filtration system. And it's not filtering, it's not filtering out the bad. It's, and this is what's shocking to people it's actually filtering, giving you a pure substance and it is like structured water. It is a stem cell rich resource. And it's something that people can use to be able to work as a feedback loop as well, because it's what we're seeing. Okay. So now what is it that we're seeing then? Okay. So firstly, what, what I'm true, what I'm saying 
it, it should make sense to people that it resembles biology. And I don't know how someone can give a single answer against me and say, oh yeah, no, sure. The babies can somehow excrete the waste through their urine. And yet it goes then again through their mouth. And this is happening on an hourly basis, like two, three hours. They're swallowing it. They're urinating it out again. What would happen is it compress again and again, and it would become increasingly more toxic. And I can tell you, I've been, I've drank my urine, looping it like that. And what happens is the exact opposite it becomes more clear, more like water, uh, more purified and more like just very pure water. And so it's the opposite of what people think. It purifies itself more with more use. And that's what's happening in the womb. And baby's urine in the womb is completely clear. And then you've got this amplification of stem cells. Now, what do we see then when we can see mycotoxins and mold and fungus and heavy metals and all these types of things? What are we seeing when we look at that in the blood? If you look at websites like urinemetabolome.ca, urinemetabolome.ca, that site will give you around 5,600 compounds that have been identified in urine. Those 5,600 compounds they range in different things. Like most of them are all like very important, very critical, important nutrients, minerals. You've got your whole hormonal profile there. You've got every neurotransmitter. Again, why somebody that is deficient in almost all their hormones, def- out of balance, somebody that is deficient and out of balance in their neurotransmitters, why are they dumping out the important things that they need in their urine why is their body out of whack? It doesn't make sense unless what it's actually giving you is information. So is what you're, what is scoring and looking, okay, this is a heavy metal. Is it actually a heavy metal or is it the body distilling down a form of this that is bioavailable, that's non-toxic to you, that's in a sterilized environment that is bioavailable to you, that's a metabolic form of it, which is a metabolic distillation of your blood where you've got the, your body and your blood purifying this substance where look at the biology of this. Look at how the blood is pressed through these tiny tubes called the nephrons and then producing this ultra-filtered substance that is so pure that even if you just got bitten by a snake, if you tried to do this filtration in an animal and create an anti-venom, it's so dangerous that it could kill a person. And what you're going to find is that you, by getting this substance, you're able to like in the case of an animal, if you're injecting an animal, like with a cone snail venom or snake venom, like a large mammal, you then take venomated blood, you spin it down to create an anti-venom. Like they typically, they're often killing people. Doctors have a hard time working out whether to give the anti-venom or not to a child, for example, because that filtration system isn't very effective of how they're distilling that and centrifuging that. Whereas your body... There's no cases that I've ever seen documented where even somebody where they were envenomated, they drank their own urine, they died from their urine, or they were poisoned by their urine in any context. Your filtration of your kidneys is so pure that it creates a pure substance. So I'm saying that you're seeing metabolic forms, they're not the substance themselves. And if it were- The mycotoxins that we measure in the urine are mm -hmm. not actually mycotoxins? Correct. Correct. They're, they're metabolic forms that have the same structure. It's a bound form that is not that. And then if you look at studies on this one, it's infinitesimal amounts. So trace amounts. So that's the important thing. So you look up case studies of say mercury, mercury doesn't get any worse than mercury as far as I'm concerned when it comes yeah. to heavy metals. Okay. So now you take a mercury poison person, you say, what, how much mercury is in their urine for starters? Like how much are we talking about? The answer is it's infinitesimal amounts firstly. And anyone that sells supplements, I'm one. If you understand that 
there is no way to manufacture any food or supplements that has no amount of trace amounts of heavy metals in them for starters. So you're consuming metals all the time anyway. And these metals don't help you get them out of the body. Whereas what's interesting is these trace amounts that are so small that if you were to like register a supplement on the market with that amount, that's like even in a mercury poison person, it would be under the level that would allow you to even sell that on the market, which is high regulation on this even right now. Now, what's interesting is in individuals that have done this and in, in studies that back this, you'll find that those that drink their urine that are mercury poison, their mercury levels go down, not up. It's actually an identification method. And it's so interesting that people go for this concept when it's related to vaccines and they say, okay, I'll take a vaccine because it'll have some of that antigen and then I'll use that to create an antibody response and that will give me protection. That's what urine actually does do. And it is a safe form. And I'm telling you, if your urine is not pure, then you have no hope because your blood, it's just the sterilization, the purification of your blood. Plasma ultra filtrate. Plasma blood ultra filtered. That's what the technical name for urine is. It's ultra filtered blood. Mm -hmm. And if your ultra filtered blood, the sterilization of your blood, not the putrefication of the blood, the sterilization of the blood, if it is toxic, you have no hope because it means that your blood, which is this, the fabric of life for you, is, is when it's distilled and purified, is still toxic then what hope do you have? It's it, it's a classic example of having your own body weaponized against itself and being mm -hmm. scared or afraid of your own body. So what is actually happening then? And first, what, what are you doing? Are you drinking? Are you yeah. injecting? I'm drinking. Like I would say for anyone, look at the ways that resemble biology and look at the ones the study backed. Yes, I did talk about injection. But I personally would say if you were to choose any one delivery method, I would say drinking is the number one because of it uh, passing through the olfactory gland and the fact that the studies that came out of Japan were showing they had several thousand people in the case studies and they found that those that did the oral delivery was better for starters. And it makes sense. That's the only one that completely resembles biology of what happened in the womb. So there was two main delivery mechanisms. One was swallowing. And well, a nose as well. So just for just to be clear here, what happens at the 10, 10 week mark, urine goes through the nostrils and the mouth. If the urine is not formed, babies do not form lungs. Okay. So they die at that point. It's the amniotic fluid, quote unquote, which is urine, by the way, that goes in to form the lungs at the 10 week mark. Okay. So it's the foundation of even organ development is actually through the urine which is once you realize that you'll be amazed. But if you do any research on stem cells, you realize if you have undifferentiated cells and they attach to a genetic blueprint that instruct them what to be, they will always become that. And so you have a genetic blueprint, which in this case is a fetus. You have stem cells coming out of the urine. They're attaching, they're going onto the skin, they're going inside the body and they're forming organs. The stem cells are attaching and forming into the organs. Semen is comes out of the penis. Urine comes out of the penis. One is responsible for the original generation of life. The other is responsible for the generation of life in a similar capacity, mm -hmm. but as a mirror to it or a channel of that source, that original blueprint is in the semen. The urine is actually the delivery mechanism that are basically like the Lego building blocks that they're undifferentiated. So they need instruction. That's where they will attach to what is the semen and the eggs of the mother together formed the genetic blueprint, the semen attached, the, sorry, the urine, the stem cells inside the urine are attaching and that's what's forming the baby. 
I'm speaking of this like it's some dialed in science, like everyone knows it, but I'm going out on a limb here. I'm telling you that if you do any studies yourself on this, you'll find that amniotic fluid is the causation or the forming factor of the lungs. And I'm saying it's just, it's more than the lungs. That's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And just remember all the biology that you've learned has been based off not understanding stem cells. You just have to realize that. And that didn't get revisited after stem cells were discovered. 20 years ago or whatever it was, which is more recent. And that should needs to be all redeveloped now. And once you realize in 2008, once they were discovered in urine, now you need to, we're only like what, 15 years into that, but yeah. Th yeah, there's not really a big budge there. But your last question again was about the non-toxic form. So what was the last thing you were saying? No, I was asking you like, literally, what do you do? Oh yeah. Drinking. Yeah. Drink so I'm saying I'm doing the one that models biology. All the time. Drinking. I drink Just it every day. Okay, I drink it every day. The, the, remember, the second is the transdermal through the skin. Remember, urea is basically the only clinically proven skin moisturizer in the world. So just just look up that for a second. One, be, why? Because it's of you. It is the most permeable substance. It goes into your skin like it was going back to Mother Earth or going back to its original place. It's lock and key. It, it absorbs so well in the skin. And then once you realize that it does that on the skin, then you start to realize how well it goes into the body and how well it absorbs and how much of disease is based on dehydration so much. And that's, and people that are drinking gallons of water a day, I was one of them. They could not get hydrated until I started doing urine therapy. That was killing me. I was getting tested for diabetes and diabetes insipidus because how could I be drinking two gallons of water and still be dehydrated? Like I was dying in a desert I was not absorbing, whereas urea is so absorbable and it's doing what it's doing outside the body is what it's doing inside the body. Amazing. But I drink it every day. I do my morning urine. I would do, I'll do my full morning output. You could do 20 drops. You could bathe your feet in it. You could do a urine enema. You could do an aged urine enema. If you're doing that, you'd want to combine aged urine with fresh urine probably around a 75 to 25% in favor of fresh urine because of the alkalinity of the aged urine, because it goes up to about a 12 pH. It's like a magnet to toxins. It's incredibly anti-parasitic and it's rich with stem cells that I'm, I'm saying would be an, a, an amazing delivery method into the colon to get stem cells into the body. But the instructions, even in fresh urine, you've got about 140 clonal stem cells in a 24-hour urine sample based on the Wake Forest study. And that's for adults and probably more for children. But and then you could do the, the fresh urine and you'd still get all those delivery mechanisms. You'd get around, because we people are all talking about the toxins, talk about all the positives. I'm saying you've got these fractal forms or the metabolic forms of the the alleged toxins, you've got those in the urine, but you've got you know thousands of compounds and metabolites, 5,600 total, but you probably have around 3,000 in a daily, like just a single urine output. So I'm basically putting thousands of electrolytes and minerals and compounds and metabolites into my body that are signaling the body. Remember, it's Dr. Thomas Seafried and others that talk about the fact that cancer is a metabolic disease. Remember, cancer is a metabolic disease. Okay, if it's a metabolic disease, why don't you take metabolites then? Why don't you take thousands of metabolites that your body is generating to let the body solve its own issues through those metabolites that are self-signaling mechanisms that is the basis of homeopathy, where homeopathy is about signaling the body based on, on, on having, and in this case, it's a more of a focus on toxins, but it's as much in the positive where you've got 
metabolic forms of hormones, metabolic forms of neurotransmitters and your self-signaling through that mechanism. So yes, you can drink, you can put direct onto the skin and you can put aged urine on the skin and you could do injection in the subcutaneous fat of fresh urine. You technically could do aged urine. I don't have as much experience on that. Dr. Ed Group has done that on himself to demonstrate it, but he doesn't advise people to do that just because there's just there's not as much information. Whereas all the other examples I told you were fresh urine being injected into the subcutaneous fat for the cancer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid to ask this question. Do it. Taste? <laughs> okay, sure. No, don't be afraid. Okay, one, like water. It tastes like water. And it. if you do it, just be willing to look up some videos of children eating vegetables for the first time. And you realize that those children are gagging, like they're about to die and they're vomiting and they're literally having the most terrible time because they're eating a vegetable. Is a vegetable disgusting? You probably enjoy vegetables, but the amount of minerals that are in there are repulsive to that baby because its palate is so trained to these simple foods. See the point I'm making? Yeah. Have your, has, has your body ever been hit with 3000 compounds and metabolites in a second? And how does your body understand and compute that information when it's never done that before? So it tastes probably not so great, maybe a little gross, but it wouldn't taste gross if you simply, one, mixed it, two, got so hydrated that it was clear when you took it. And I'm telling you, if your urine is clear when you take, it will taste identical to water with a little bit of a taste that is, what was that? Uh, tastes like a little bit of a tang in one direction, which would maybe be um, slightly towards green tea or uh coconut water or some kind of different taste, but you have to remember, because it's a psychological exercise. Remember you got indoctrinated since you were a child, that this is a toxic substance. Yeah. And if it touches you, you need to wash your hand really vigorously. And, and then you say gross and it's just so horrible and yuck. And that is gone over in your mind over decades. If you're listening to this as an adult, now, what are you going to do? You've got to unwind that. And so it's all education that yeah. unwinds that, but that's it's Taste is exactly, but people would drink wine and strong liquor and spirits. Like it tasted amazing when it tastes terrible and it actually does taste terrible. Urine tastes in so much better than any alcohol by far. And that just shows you how far conditioning has gone where yeah. you say, this is great. And I can't do without this. And the other ones that's repulsive. And it's, it tastes like water. And if you eat more raw food, it'll taste um, way better uh, by raw food. I'm not talking about raw sushi, more plant-based you it'll taste uh, like way better. And then fasting. Oh, the key is to do it while you're fasting. Because if you did it after, even if it was a good meal, whether it was plant-based or meat or whatever it was, in, in whatever regard, if you did it straight after the meal, it doesn't taste great. Why? Because it just tastes better when you're fasting. So the first mm -hmm. morning urine makes a lot of sense because you're actually fasting and then it becomes pretty benign. And then you can literally mix it with a workout powder. You could put, you could ice it, chill it. You could do anything. And it masks itself so much under that taste. Like you could put it with a workout protein shake that's chocolate and with a banana and you will not be able to tell the difference. And then you're getting so many nutrients and minerals. I'm just picturing me giving my 17-year-old a urine smoothie. Yeah. Oh, I look. And the response. <laughs> Which, and the only problem is because it didn't happen more when they were younger, but it would be the reverse. Like... I, I can't talk like publicly much in this regard, but all I can tell you is that it's just, all I can say is it's super, it's very natural and it, yeah. So, and so is it once a day? 
yeah, I do it once a day, just the morning. Uh, it's the easiest for me to remember. And it's just, I've been doing it for like over a year, maybe a year and two or three months. And my blood work has shown like dramatic improvement and all kinds of things like that. But that's just me doing the first morning. And then so that again, going along the lines of people understanding, because when we understand our why we are so much more likely to comply. True. What is happening in terms of cancer? Oh yeah. In terms of the results. Yeah. In terms of the results and also like on a physiologic level, like what, what exactly is happening on a cellular level that leads to tumor regression? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So here's what's happening. This is what was all being documented all through that last hundred years that was coming up in all these medical journals and why part of the reason why urine was getting used in all kinds of medications and still is used as a major anti-cancer medication, urokinase is an amazing proteolytic enzyme, breaks down proteins, like you want these types of therapies. Okay, but here's the real key in all of it. One, it's the antigen. So you've got the antigen to cancer that you're reintroducing to your body in a non-harmful form that is a recognition system saying, here's a problem, guys, form an antibody. And so when you have an antigen with an antibody and you have that connection happen, then it's recognition. Ah, you're the cancer. You're not self. You're not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to be doing that. Let's either get rid of you. You're basically reigniting the immune system. Yep. Exactly. You're You're educating and reigniting the immune system. Exactly. You're giving it like night vision goggles. Mm -hmm. And then so now it knows what it's doing. It you're giving it information. It needs that information. It needs your participation. Yeah. Uh, Remember babies in the womb, it's not that they didn't have issues. They had worse issues than what you and I have today with chronic disease in that they have things that happen like fluid cysts in their brain, which probably would get diagnosed as something like cancer if they're adults or whatever, but they have these fluid cysts in their brain and they have bright spots in their heart. All of these would be terminal if they didn't self-resolve them, but you have a neurological feedback loop with the urine and it is definitely working through the neurotransmitters. It's working through like the brain, you can get urine derived stem cells do differentiate into neurons. That's an example. They will form brain cells based on studies that have been published. Just anyone just do the search, put in urine stem cells, and then you'll find all the ones that come up on brain and all the ones that come up on, and I'm speaking specifically on urine cells, uh, urine derived stem cells. So what will happen is you'll get that connection Two, you'll get your stem cells that are going into your body. Now, if it's fresh urine, you're not getting like a lot, you're getting hundreds versus millions, which you'd get in aged urine. So if you're getting those stem cells, what I'm saying is it must be the mechanism of what's happening because I'm seeing evidence of it. It's giving your body the uh, knowledge to create more of these cells. So you're giving it something that is a stimulus to say, create more of this. So even though it's a small amount, because I've seen case studies where people just drink fresh urine, but they're showing all the signs of regeneration as if they were you know, basically drinking stem cells or in high amounts, even though they're drinking small amounts, Mm -hmm. but their hair is regrowing really strong and thick and their knees aren't cracking, popping their feet aren't chapped, like really regenerative aspects of health and healing. And it's, and I'm quoting a particular case right now, Gloria Charlene, she was chronically vaccine injured after the second Pfizer shot. She had bleeding for 16 days out of the month for seven months straight and a double period, an induced period and heart palpitations. I actually saw that in a ton of people. Wow that they described their menstrual cycles repeatedly as bananas 
I heard that from more than one patient wow. that there was such cycle disruption. Wow. Yeah. And okay. So the, this, that woman, for example, Gloria, I met her in January of this year. We're coming up to the end of the year. Um, and of the time that this is airing, it'll be basically January of the previous year or depending on when this is going out. But January of 2023, she had for two years had pal- heart palpitations since the day of her shot for mm-hmm. two years straight. And they were so severe that she felt like she was going to have a heart attack, like her heart was beating out of its chest. So she had to not take flights of stairs, do things that would exert herself. Yeah. Even though she was a gym junkie, she kept a gym bag in her car. It was her most favorite thing to do. She had to give that up entirely because she could have died just like any athlete uh, getting heart attacks on the field. She was showing all those signs and um, she was bleeding chronically. She had these killer migraines. The pain, painful periods were so horrific that she had a child that she'd said that this was worse than uh, any other pain she'd had in her life. So imagine like having a labor yeah. as if you're you know, yeah. giving birth every month. Yeah. The first day she started urine therapy after a month, she thought about what I said for about a month. It was just like rattling around head like a ping pong ball until it finally went into, got a reception. And then she said, I'm going to do this. And basically it was this kind of huge eye-opening moment where she said, I don't need a doctor to heal me. My body will heal itself and it'll be through the urine. And it was this thing of trusting herself and trusting God instead of trusting a white coat. And this Mm -hmm. is what happened to her. And then she started drinking her urine. That was the last day she had heart palpitations. And I've seen lots of cases like this now. This is amazing. It is amazing. Like when you think about it, I'm saying that's primarily because the venom vector of what's happened with the COVID cases is there's a synthetic venom aspect. And if you understand that these tumors are switched on with, and look, this is a key part here. Uh, This is a key part that is so critical to understand. If you look at the fact that uh, it was Carlo Brogner that produced the study in June of 2020, he found 36 different types of animal venoms in the COVID positive patients. This was in COVID positive patients. This was Mm -hmm. before the vaccine existed. Why did he find 36, 36 venoms? Why didn't he, why did he find any at all? And why were they species from all around the world? The Malayan crate, the Uruguayan coral snake, the Malayan spitting cobra, the, the Chinese, you know, taipan and crate snake and why did he find then another 15 varieties of cone snails the california cone snail the yellow pacific cone the fish hunting cone snail and the marble cone and the crown of thorn starfish why is he finding these in people's bodies and these cause all these issues with dysregulation respiratory arrest if you look up every symptom of envenomation they mirror every kind of strange abnormality that have anything to do with neurological function bleeding heart palpitations for for example the cia had developed a heart attack gun that they disclosed in 1975 using shellfish venom so shellfish does absolutely create heart attacks mm-hmm. and you've got these mechanisms why does this relate to tumors for starters do you know that scientists try to create tumors in animal models so that they can find anti-cancer drugs. Right, all the time. What forms tumors in a matter of days, like 72 hours, more than anything else that I've ever found. But does that better than anything else? No. Venom. Wow. Alpha cobra toxin, alpha conotoxin, 72 hours, more or less, you'll create glioma C6 cells. Your tumor is so aggressive that in these murine models, they'll trigger the death of these these animals, these mouse and these mice through this, this delivery mechanism. And then guess what they're doing? They then take nicotine as the base and they're trying to find a drug that will mimic nicotine because nicotine competes for the same receptors because all animal venoms bind to alpha seven nicotinic acetylcholine, acetylcholine receptors. So it's binding to these receptors 
And then by binding to these receptors, it creates such a dysregulation in the body. And then there's such confusion in the body that then the body is sending all kinds of signals to itself. And the reason that it's doing that is because you've got a limbless creature like a cone snail or a snake that is infecting its host so that it doesn't even have the ability to catch up to it. So it has to just wait for it to have a heart attack. And so it's all these functions are happening at once. Guillain-Barre syndrome is like a typical reaction to venom. And so then they're paralyzed. They can't, and then they get diagnosed with anything and everything. And then these tumors just start growing as well because it's dysregulation. It's basically, yeah. it's a misfire. It's, oh yeah, just go ahead and do whatever. And this, the, these cells are having a lack of instruction, proper instruction and encoding and direction on what they're supposed to do. So this thing is all out of whack and it's the venom that's causing this. And so basically, if you look at these animal models, you can look at alpha conotoxin, alpha cobra toxin, promote the proliferation of G6, G6, uh, C6, glioma C6 cells. And then you'll find that in 72 hours by using nicotine in vivo in animal models, the tumor growth dropped by 50%, more than two times, it said in the study. So you see this massive tumor growth and then they apply nicotine and all of a sudden there's a massive drop in tumor growth. If I had a glioma, would I want to take nicotine? Yes, I would want to. And why did they stop the study at 72 hours? Why didn't they keep going and see what would happen if we apply this for another 72 hours? Would this completely eradicate it? No, they don't want that finding to even come out. And they buried this finding. You can look up just using the keywords that I just mentioned there. Find it. Why did they bury that finding? Not in. They didn't even put it in the abstract. Why did they put that in the body? You can see the images where the graphs where it shows the drops in the tumor growth. So what I'm saying is- This is astounding. Isn't that important? Uh, and again, now you'd say, Jonathan, if you're saying that this happened with COVID, then breast cancer and other diseases and cancers, they existed before COVID. So just big deal. Maybe that's relevant to this particular scenario, but not re relevant universally. Wrong. Here's why it's relevant universally. What's the number one ingredient in pesticides? Venom. I, I never knew that. Synthetic, so peptide venom. How do I know that? Wow. Be because you just, just go on Google and I'm talking about from the manufacturers themselves, not from like people like me that are exposing them, but people that are actually the manufacturers or the developers and how they brag about these technologies and how they work. Scorpion venom, cone snail venom, spider venom, snake venom, and Monsanto, Bayer, they have mm -hmm. the patents. They have the patents. Wow. So what does that tell you as yeah. pesticides? So now does that make sense? Why serolini? Well, we always knew that they were poison. Now you we know why. They were poison. Yeah. Now, do you yeah. remember seeing serolini give the rats Roundup Ready corn? And then all of a sudden these rats just filled up with tumors. Like the mm -hmm. whole rat has got tumors as big as its head yeah. all over its body. Dysregulation, what's causing that? The active ingredient, which is the animal venom. Dr. Brian Artis actually got glyphosate tested and found animal venom. In, in glyphosate as well, when he did the testing and he'd done the reflection. I'd done my research on this and said, hold on a second, this must have venom in it. He was sharing this information. He found that information as well. And or and wow. then he went further and did more research on that, shared that. Wow. That is really astounding. This has been like a completely eye-opening talk, incredibly informative. And I just want to run back over what we talked about today, because we started talking about 
outside of the box things that people can do to markedly change the trajectory that they're on, because really that's what we're most interested in that you and I are not focused on the tumor because the tumor is not the problem. The tumor is the symptom of the problem. And the problem is the dysregulation that is going on in the body. And that comes as a result of these various toxins that come in all kinds of forms in our environment, but that you and I both know that we were given everything we need to be healthy yeah, and that the body knows how to heal itself once you enable it to heal itself. And so we talked about some antiparasitics because parasites are a huge problem. We talked about fenbendazole, ivermectin, and turmeric as things that can help to influence that. And that, and that maybe especially if you're starting off or if you have evidence that you have parasites, that a 90 day therapy may be appropriate. And maybe it's not straight through, maybe it's three days on three days off, six days on six days off, but something along those lines to address that issue, because it is creating low lying inflammation in the body and it is influencing and stimulating this dysregulation. And then we got into urine as a source of stem cells and the role that stem cells play in informing the immune system and in allowing your body to to go along those self-repair pathways. And, And we talked about how to do that and where all the data is and and you gave people a website. Remind me of what that website oh, yeah. is again. Urinetherapy.com. Urinetherapy.com. So please go ahead and check that out. And Jonathan, I know you have a lot of resources for people. Can you just name some of the things that they can go and watch your films and learn from this great body of information that you have curated? Absolutely. So Healing Genesis, I've got an amazing nine episode documentary series there, which you can go to healingseries.com. I go into detail with all this. I go with the 50 different, 40 different experts sharing just really amazing information, detailing all the different things that I'm talking about, whether it was urine therapy or antiparasitics or, or the venom aspect of COVID and all chronic disease. That's amazing. So Healing Genesis, which is healingseries.com. And then you've got lots of other resources, for example, with our supplements. We do a lot with fulvic and antiparasitics and heavy metal detox. So these are very uh, helpful and supportive uh, to do in conjunction with the therapies I've talked about. And they're really amazing detoxification methods to remove parasites. Like I mentioned, the mimosa pudica seed and the green harvested black walnut hulls and the humic and fulvic and trophala. That they're all the ingredients in our para purify. Uh, formula, which is on welloflife.com. And we've got like bundles, like the ultimate detox bundle, which has the uh, toxi binder, which is, has all the binders for the metals with humic, fulvic and dandelion root and milk thistle and extracts of cordyceps and various formulas there to help. And they go really well with getting the parasites at the same time and cleansing the colon and liquid yeah. fulvic minerals. And, and remembering that the colon is where you are eliminating your toxins yeah. and it's not coming up through the urine, but yeah, that, do. but that, and that pathway has to be open. So you got it. 
So few people understand what constipation is and they think that it's normal to move your bowels once a week and it is not. (laughs) And you have to have that pathway open. Otherwise you are just recirculating all of these toxins and they are having ill effects on your health and creating that transformation to that your cells are responding to. And this is where cancer is coming from. It's so true. Exactly. And that nothing will make you more regular than urine. That's what I found. Yeah. It's, yeah. Once people realize, oh man, that, that is so amazing. And because I've had problems, I'm 37 and I've still had problems with hemorrhoids and things like this. And that, that has cleared those issues because it allows, it's basically creating an absorption and a, in the body that is its own kind of internal moisturization, which is amazing and helping the, like the regular bowel movements and helping that whole system. So that's really quite an amazing aspect. And the anti-venom aspect as well is really important of urine. Now now that people understand the critical aspect of that, then that I think it would be really helpful. But yeah, there's a few resources for people, the healingseries.com. The there's disease in reverse, which is disease in reverse.com, which is an amazing series as well. That's those are the two of my most recent series. As the name implies, we do deal with cancer heavily in both of those series, both yeah. the healing genesis and in disease in reverse. Yeah. And we talk about all these different therapies. Amazing. Um, and, then, and then there's supplements on wellofLife.com, are very helpful for anyone that just wants to improve their health or people that are dealing with chronic states and they want to get toxins out of their body with using proven formulas. And then that's amazing. And one of the testimonies that inspires me the most was Natalia Voloshin, where she'd been given, uh, she'd tried for five and a half years to get better. She'd spent $200,000. She had four autoimmune conditions, vasculitis, myositis, rheumatoid arthritis, and Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So four conditions, her legs were going gangrene. She was told, she was at Cleveland Clinic. She was told that she was going to have both her legs amputated in two weeks if she didn't do high dose chemo and steroids. That's when she found us. She watched a series of mine called Autoimmune Secrets. And then she studied it and she used the formulas. And again, look, these aren't... you know, intended to diagnose or treat, but she just, she did this. She was removing toxins out of her body Mm -hmm. and she was able to get herself off the chemo and the steroids by using healthy supplementation. And she was able to reverse her condition. I flew out to see her. It was amazing to see that here she was, she saw 30 specialists, by the way, half of those were functional medicine doctors and naturopathic doctors. She said everyone had taught generally what you were talking about in the holistic side, but no, none of them talked about it in a whole sequence. And they often missed a couple of different points. And so I never got better doing that after spending all that money. And then here she spent comparatively pennies, literally like on what we were, what we advised and were sharing. And she reversed the condition. She had beautiful slim legs now, and her body is like completely in shape. She swims and cycles every day. She's really good at Pilates and she could do moves that I, that I don't know how to do. And she put her legs way up in the air. We got all the video footage. I flew out to see her in Delray, Florida, because I was so amazed at her. She's this beautiful Estonian woman and she worked hard to get better. And I just, whenever I'd got discouraged, I always remembered her story because I felt like if I didn't do what I did with both taking the information or in this case, making the formulas with Well of Life with the supplement company that she may not have got that result or likely yeah. wouldn't have, and she wouldn't have a leg. So whenever I got discouraged, I, was, I just always thought about her. <laughs> yeah. This was truly amazing, inspiring. I love that you shared these stories because it does allow people to see that even though you feel, you may feel uncomfortable with this, this is what has opened up possibility 
for all of these people who were told that they didn't have an alternative, who were told that the end was near. And yet here was a solution staring them down that made all the difference in the world. So thank you so much for sharing this with us, for sharing the information, for sharing all of your stories, for giving people hope and sharing solutions. You're so welcome. Thank you, Jen. I appreciate you, Dr. Simmons. You got such a great perspective. People are lucky to be following you and to be hearing from you and your beautiful soul. You care about people. You're dedicated to the truth. You really were very intentionally focused on on getting this information out and you're unabashed in your delivery. And I really respect that about you. Thank you. Thank you. And it was a pleasure having you. And I'm sure we're going to have many more conversations. So it's Dr. Jen. Bye for now. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Keeping Abreast podcast with Dr. Jen. I hope you found the discussion informative and empowering. Remember, breast health is health. So by staying informed and taking proactive steps, you have the power to optimize your well-being. My team and I encourage you to apply the knowledge gained from today's episode to make positive changes in your life and share what you've learned with others. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Your feedback and support mean the world to us and help us to reach more people who can benefit from these conversations. Stay connected with me on social media where I share additional resources, advice, updates, and announcements related to breast health. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Dr. Jen Simmons. And remember, my Jen has two ends. So until next time, remember to stay proactive, informed, and confident in your breast health journey. The key to your health is you.